Amen. You can be seated. Hey, would you join me in giving God glory and thanking this team for leading us so effectively today? What a great time of worship. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. We're glad you're at Rolling Hills today. And uh, as you came in, all of you were given a little worship guide. And in that worship guide is a com uh, communication card. And I'm going to ask, uh, if you're a guest this morning, would you just take a second and fill that card out and give us a little information on yourself so we can follow up with you. And then for all of you, if you have something going on in your life that you'd like prayer about, we'd like to join you uh, in praying for that. Every Monday morning, we gather as a staff to pray, and then we have teams that pray for you all throughout the week. And so give us that opportunity uh, to do that with you. Now today... It's kind of a special day. Well, it's not special in this fact, but Jeff, Leo, Chase, and the team are off on their way down to the Amazon where they're going to host the annual JMI Pastors Conference. In fact, they may be watching online from the airport. So Jeff and team, good morning. Uh, we're glad you guys are watching. And there are people literally watching around the world. We've got folks in Philippines, in Europe, and then all over the United States that are watching online. That's a little bit crazy. We welcome you uh, this morning. So with Jeff being out, we knew that we wanted to talk about legacy today. Uh, being a young church, um, I hear this over and over and over again in small group and just in conversations. Being a young church, a lot of us with small children, we live in the tyranny of the urgent. And uh, I heard it said the other day that I just survive in 15-minute increments. And uh, being young and surviving and living in survival mode, a lot of times doesn't allow us to really reflect on our life and see the principle of the path that we're on. And we are here, we follow Christ because we want to be people of significance. And so this morning, our prayer for you is that God might speak to you and give you time and space to reflect on what he has for you so that you just don't live in the tyranny of the urgent until your kids are out of the house. To help us with that, we have a special guest. Tony Campolo is joining us, and if you don't know Tony, he is a well-known, well-revered speaker, has been for several, several years. He's an author, he's a professor, he is, uh, he is just well-known, and he, is, he was with us, I think, five years ago, back when we were in the theater before we moved to this uh, facility, and so he's coming back five years later to speak to us. We had a great time in the first service. Tony never disappoints. He's hilarious. He's got great content. He'll speak to your heart. And we believe the Holy Spirit will speak even beyond his word. So would you join me in welcoming Dr. Tony Campolo? Join me in welcoming him. Thanks, man. Albert Einstein was on a train leaving Princeton heading north. The conductor came over to him and Albert Einstein was reaching in his pockets, couldn't find his ticket. Uh, reaching in his briefcase, feeling around on the seat behind him, he couldn't find his ticket. Finally, the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. Don't worry about the ticket. He moved on and uh, about 10 minutes later, he was coming back down the aisle of the train and here's Einstein, still searching for the ticket. And uh, he said, uh, Dr. Einstein, I told you, I know who you are. Uh, don't worry about the ticket. Einstein stood up, looked at this guy, eyeball to eyeball, and said, Sir, I know who I am. I want to know where I'm going. 
They're the two questions. Two questions you have to answer. Who am I? Where am I going? Two basic questions of human existence. Establish your identity. Sociologists like Charles Cooley say it this way. Important in your identity is who's the most significant person in your life. You, you'll hear them talk about the significant others. Uh, Charles Cooley, uh, George Herbert Mead, great sociologists have said, who's the significant other in your life? Because what you think of yourself will be contingent upon what you think the most important person in your life thinks of you. Let me repeat that. What you think of yourself is contingent, is dependent on what you think the most important person in your life thinks of you. To be a Christian is not simply to accept a set of doctrines. I mean, if you simply say, I believe that Jesus is God, that he's the second member of the Trinity, that he's coming again, all the things that are in the Apostles' Creed, you've got good theology. That doesn't make you a Christian. You become a Christian when you make this decision. Jesus Christ is the most important person in my life. I'm going to define myself in relationship to him. I have a friend, one of the great preachers in America. He was on his vacation in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. He's having breakfast in this little restaurant with his wife. They don't have many hours together. This is a precious time. Coming into the restaurant was this old guy in overalls walked by the table and stopped and he turned and he said, hey, hey, mister, you're not from around here. Uh, 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 what's your name? Fred said, my name's Fred Craddock. He said, what do you do? Trying to turn the guy off. I, I mean, I know what it's like to try to turn somebody off because I, I, I'm on airplanes more days than I am not. And I get a lot of work done on airplanes and I, I get my reading, my... Uh, writing done. I, I just don't want to be in a conversation in most occasions. If I want to be in a conversation and somebody asks me, what do you do? I say, uh, I'm a sociologist. And they'll say, oh, how interesting. And we have a conversation. If I want to turn the guy off when he says, what do you do? I say, I'm a Baptist evangelist. <laughs> Ends the conversation right there. This old guy says to Fred, hey, what do you do, Fred? Fred said, I'm a professor of homiletics at a theological seminary. That should scare him. The old guy said, you're a preacher. That's what you are. You're a preacher. That's cutting right through the crap, right down to it. You're a preacher. He said, I got a preacher story you got to hear. He pulled a chair up and sat down. Fred said, oh, jeez. He said, you see those hills out there? I was born in those hills. And when I was growing up, I was ashamed of who I was. They called me Ben the Bastard Boy. And you know why they called me Ben the Bastard Boy? Because that's what I am, mister. I'm a bastard. My mother would never tell me who my father was. When I went to school, they made fun of me. That's where I got that rhythmical name, uh, Ben the Bastard Boy. When I walked down the street, I had the feeling that people were reporting at me and saying, there goes Ben. 
There goes Ben. I, I wonder who his father was. They probably weren't saying that. It didn't make any difference. I thought they were saying that. I thought they were saying that about me, and that's what was important. I was ashamed of myself. When I was about 12, a new preacher came to this town, and everybody was talking about how good he could preach. I had never been to church, but I decided to go and hear this new preacher. So I went to church. I, I, went, I went late, made sure to leave early. That way nobody would talk to me, either coming or going, because I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was ashamed of myself. And that preacher was good. I started going every Sunday, arriving late, leaving early. But one Sunday he was so good, I forgot to get up and leave. The service was over, people squeezed into the aisles. I couldn't get through it. All of a sudden there was a heavy hand on my shoulder. I turned and this preacher man was staring down at me. And he said, hey boy, what's your name boy? And before I could answer, he asked me the one question I didn't want anybody ever to ask me. Who's your father, boy? Tell me, what's your father's name? He asked me a question that just created pain. I felt the pain to the top of my head, the bottom of my toes, when he asked me who my father was. And then he looked at me and he said, you don't know who your father is. You don't even know your father's name, do you, boy? You don't know your father's name? Well, I do. And I'm going to tell you the name of your father. Preacher, his old guy said, I looked up into that preacher's face, wondering, does he have the answer? The cue to the secret of my existence. And he looked down at me and he said, boy, your father's name, your father's name is God. Do you understand that boy? You are the son of God. You are a child of God. Do you understand that you are a son of God? The old preacher man told me that. Moved by the telling of his own story, he brushed a tear away from his cheek and he got up and he said, well, that's, that's my preacher's story. When he told me that I was a child of God, it changed my life. As he walked away, the waitress came over and said, do you know who you were talking to? Do you know who that was? Fred said, I, I think he said his name was Ben. Waitress says, that's Ben Hooper, the governor of Tennessee. A man whose life was changed because he defined himself in a new way. He saw himself as a child of God. You need to do that. You need to see yourself as Jesus sees you. You need to define yourself in terms of Jesus. He should become the significant other in your life. Who you are should be defined in reference to him. I am who Jesus says I am. You say, but, but Jesus sees my sin. Let me break the good news to you. No, he doesn't. Here's what the scripture says. If you confess your sins, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive you of your sins. First chapter of 1 John. He will forgive you of your sins. You say, well, it goes on to say, 
and he will cleanse you. He will cleanse you. The Bible says your sins will be blotted out. They'll be buried in the deepest sea. They will be remembered no more. Don't think that on Judgment Day, he's going to say, Campolo, we've been waiting for you. If they open the Campolo book, I got news for you. It will only have good things written there. My sins, here it is in the scriptures, your sins are blotted out. They are buried in the deepest sea. Are you ready for this? Remembered no more. In the Russian Orthodox liturgy, there's this line. On the cross, he became everything that we are in order that we might become everything that he is. Whoa. Think about that. That's why he cried in Gethsemane. That's why he wept in Gethsemane. He wasn't afraid of the agonizing death he was going to have to die. He wasn't even afraid of dying. Why should he be afraid of dying? He had predicted his own resurrection time and time again. He wasn't afraid of dying, nor was he afraid of the agony of the cross. The reason why he cried in Gethsemane was this. He knew when he hung on the cross, according to scripture, when he hung there, he who never sinned, listen to this, became sin for our sakes. I mean, we all believe that he took the punishment for our sin. We even sang about that today, didn't we? He, he took the punishment for our sin. He did more than that. He who loathed sin, who, who was repulsed by sin, uh, he on the cross, listen to this, became sin. He cried in Gethsemane because he knew that when he hung spread eagle on that Roman gibbet, he would become every murderer, every liar, every child molester, every blasphemer, every fornicator, every adulterer. He would become everything that's wrong about every single one of us. Whatever is in you, Whatever has marked your past, on the cross, he like a magnet will reach across time and space and as though they were iron filings, he will draw them out of you and suck them into his own body like a sponge. He will absorb from you the dirt, the darkness, the ugliness that you see in yourself. When you let Jesus have his way with you, he will not only forgive you of your sins, this church preaches the forgiveness of sins, but do you understand that he cleanses you? He purifies you. Though your sins be as scarlet, says the scripture, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Do we understand each other? Who are you? What is your relationship with Jesus? Are you ready to see yourself as he sees you? Cleansed purified, would you allow him to impart to you, says the scripture, his righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it says in scripture. That on judgment day he shall sit, present you. In the book of James it says he shall present you. It says it in the book of Jude as well. Spotless, without sin, he will present you faultless. Whoa, I can handle that. Or Judgment Day, I could hear Jesus say, Father, I want you to be my friend Tony, the perfect one. I hope my wife's there. She'll probably say, well, you don't know him like I know him. The truth is, he sees past your sin. He cleanses you. He, he wants you to see yourself as he sees you, the significant other. 
Is he the significant other in your life? Have you said, Jesus, you're my life, you're my all. I give myself to you. The second thing that will establish your identity is a simple thing. It will be this. Your identity is established in the little things that you do. Sometimes when you hear uh, speakers, they talk about all the great people who have done great things for God. Mother Teresa said this. We all can't do great things, but we all can do little things with great love. Little things with great love. I was in an airport in New Mexico, Farmington, New Mexico. I was waiting for a little commuter flight to fly in and, and pick up passengers to take to Denver and, uh, and drop off some passengers who had come out from Denver. I looked around, there were about eight of us in this little tiny terminal. And I looked at this one old lady. She had a bead looking face. I mean, she just looked mean and angry. I had nothing else to do, so I wandered over and sat down next to her. And I started to talk to her. And I was determined to get her to smile. Well, people, I not only got her to smile, I got her to laugh. And once she started laughing, there was no stopping her. She was laughing and laughing and laughing. The other guys in the air terminal gathered around and we all joined in and worked on her. She was laughing really hard and finally she said, please stop, I'm laughing too hard. I'm an old lady, you have no idea what's going to happen. The little airplane landed. Her friend got off the airplane, came into the terminal. She went up and hugged her friend and waved goodbye to me and to the other guys. And she went out. I was waiting for them to call us to go through the metal detector and I looked down the glass door and here was this car coming up the coming up the lane. This old lady got out. She shuffled back into the airport, air terminal, and she came up to me and she said, Mister, you could not have known this. But it was it was two years ago today that my husband of 54 years died. You didn't know that. You didn't know that it was two years ago today that he died. But on the way home, I realized today was the first day since then that I've been able to laugh. And I had to come back and thank you. You say, so big deal. You got a little old lady to laugh. Uh, you see great importance of that. I want to ask you something. If Jesus had the choice between walking on water and getting a broken-hearted old lady to laugh again, which do you think he would deem the more important? What, what do you think? You say, but that's such a small thing. That's exactly it. The old hymn goes, not with swords loud clashing or the sound of beating drums, but with simple acts of kindness, the heavenly kingdom comes. The little things that you do, they, they change you. The sociologists, I, I hate to even mention uh, the neo-Marxist, point out that what we do changes us. More than what we think, what we do changes us. It's called praxis in sociology. Our little acts, our almost unconscious acts. And so I, I'm saying this to you. First of all, you have to redefine yourself in relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to see yourself as he sees you. 
I teach at college and I, I sometimes love to pick on a student on the front row and say, uh, I want you to stand up, Charlie. The student will stand, I say to the rest of the class, see Charlie here? He was once a sperm. You hear the giggles go up. He was once a sperm. Uh, 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 do you remember Charlie? I said, you were once one of five million sperm. And you were all together on a group. At the end of a long, long tunnel, there was one egg. And there was a race. And you won. <laughs> the odds were five million to one, Charlie, and you came through. You make the Olympics look like nothing. You are a winner, Charlie. You're a winner. You are not anything but a winner. Think about it, Charlie. If your mother had had a headache, you wouldn't even be here today. <laughs> you are special. God sees you as special. You are of incredible importance. He died for you. And he calls upon you to live out your lives in simple acts of kindness. Doing the things that Jesus would do if Jesus was in your place. I, I have a friend who's a minister out in California. She's in Bel Air, California, the ritziest place in the Hollywood area. She goes to Dorsen's department store every Christmas. She can't afford to buy anything there. Everything's so expensive. But she takes a Nordstrom shopping bag, fills it with tissue paper, walks around and pretends she's shopping because the ambience is magnificent. Live music on every floor. The decorations are overwhelmingly beautiful. She enjoys it. She's up on the top floor. The elevator door is open. Out steps a bag lady, a dirty, cruddy bag lady. All of her earthly belongings are in her gym bag on her side. Claire looks at this woman who obviously is just off the streets. She doesn't have any money to buy a dress on the top floor of Nordstrom's where the least expensive dress is $1,000. She fully expects a couple of security guards to come and get her and usher her out. Instead, a stately saleswoman comes over and says, can I help you, madam? The bag lady said, yeah, want a, want a dress. What kind of dress, madam? A party dress. You've come to the right place. Come with me. They go over to this rack of dresses, beautiful dresses. The least expensive one was $1,000. The saleswoman spends 10 to 15 minutes talking about which dress would go best with her hair color, her eye color, her complexion. Finally, they pick two dresses off the rack. And the saleswoman said, would you come with me, madam? I want you to go into the dressing room and try on these dresses. I want to see you in each of them. Claire said, I hustled into the dressing room right next to theirs and leaned against the wall. I wanted to hear this. For the next 15 minutes, they talked about how lovely she looked in each of the dresses. Finally, the bag lady said what was expected. She said, I changed my mind. I changed my mind. I, I'm not going to buy a dress today. The saleswoman said, that's quite all right, madam. Here's my card. I hope you come back to Nordstrom's. And if you do, would you please ask for me to wait on you? I would consider it such a privilege to wait on you again. The bag lady left. Claire waited for the saleswoman to come out of the dressing room. Wanted to find out what that was all about. She walked up to her. She didn't have to ask. The woman was wearing a little pin. W-W-J-D. What 
would Jesus do? It wasn't a big thing. It was a loving thing. It was a kind thing. That's part of the legacy that you leave behind. You think it's going to be the big things that you're going to do or think about doing or have done? No. People will remember how you made them feel. Did you make them feel special? Uh, we, we brought up our little boy to say these words over, over again. It's nice to be important. It's more important to be nice. You say, you're watering it down to some syrupy thing. Syrupy things are beautiful things. Do you reach out to people? Are you kind? Here's what it says in scripture. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. How do you treat people? That's, that's the most important part of your legacy. Your accomplishments were not as important as how you make ordinary people in the ordinary events of life, how you make them feel. So first of all, there's, there's definition of self in terms of how you see the significant other thinking of you. Secondly, are you doing things day in and day out? Do you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, be with me. Help me to be kind and tender. Help me to look into people's eyes and have this sense that you're staring back at me through them. Help me to treat others as though each of them was you. And, and then this, and finally this. You have to begin to think about the future. You have to think about the future. Christianity stands over and against pop psychology. It, if you take a psychology course at, at the university, you go to Vanderbilt, they'll, they'll, they'll make you write your life history the first day in psychology class because what they're trying to tell you is that you are the product of your past. Uh, your past experiencings, your past social conditioning have determined who you are or what you are. They're either neo-Freudians or, neo, uh, or behaviorists who, who say we are molded, we are conditioned, we are... I'm not suggesting that the past hasn't an influence on you. I'm not saying that the past hasn't, in fact, impacted you. I'm saying that the past doesn't determine who you are. Who you are is more determined by what you envision for the future. What you envision for the future is more important than the social conditioning of your yesterdays. What do you believe about the future? I work with inner city kids. We started programs in 11 different cities across the United States, working with kids that armies have marched over. Their parents are, are beat them, uh, humiliate them. Uh, uh, they, they treat them like dirt. If you could hear the way parents talk to some of these kids in some of these slum areas, it would shock the daylights out of you. And if I believed that these kids were simply products of their past experiences, I would give up tomorrow morning. But I could say to these kids, what you are is not as dependent on what you've been as it is dependent on what you choose to become. Becoming a Christian isn't just believing in Jesus Christ. It involves defining yourself anew as Jesus sees you. It's, it's, 
It's doing the kind things that Jesus would do if Jesus was in your place, but this, it's choosing to commit yourself in such a way that what you become in the future is, is what he wants you to be. What do you want to become? By God's grace and in his strength, you can become what he wants you to be. Can you stop and think right now? If God could have his way with me, what would I become? What would my future be? Some of you may say, it's too late for me. It's never too late. I, a lady called me on the telephone. She said, I heard you speak at Ocean City Tabernacle last Sunday. I went back and listened to the tape, and she said, I, I talked about Haiti and, and the work that needed to be done among the poor people of Haiti. I listened to the tape. I never said any such thing. She heard something I didn't say. She said, I, I decided that I, I should go as a missionary to Haiti. She was like 70 years old. I, we don't need people like that in Haiti. I, I, called, I called down to the, I called down to the uh, people down there in, in Haiti. I, the guys that are working for me, all are single. All of them were living uh, simple lives. I said, I got this 70-year-old lady. She wants to come down and join you. I said, you can't handle a woman like that. We, we sleep in the, on the floor of this hut, and we, and we try ride around into the hills on motorcycles. Uh, tell her we need people who can ride around on motorcycles. So I called her and told her, and it was about six weeks later that she, the phone rang again, and it was the same lady saying, I just finished my last motorcycle lesson. Jeez. She went to Haiti. And she stayed there for years. And she married a guy and, and, and she went there to spend the rest of her life serving Jesus Christ. She, an old lady who had a vision and a dream, something she wanted to become even at the age of 70. That doesn't surprise me because Abraham was 94 years old when he got the vision of what he could be. What a seed in the Bible. He, he turns to his wife, Sarah. I could just picture it, picture it. Shakes this old lady, she's 92. Sarah? Got the picture? Sarah! Poor old lady. What is it, Abe? I just had a vision. Hey, guys, there's a whole new approach you haven't tried yet. <laughs> what kind of vision? We're going to start a new epoch in human history. We're going to change the human race. We're going to start humanity all over again. Poor old lady. How's this new humanity start, Abe? I could just hear, hear Abe say, glad you asked, Sarah. Now, if you don't have a sense of humor, you've got to see this next picture as it's described in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, that Abraham and Sarah are leaving the Ur of the Chaldees not knowing where they're going. Oh, got the picture? This 94-year-old man walking down a dusty trip uh, uh, on his walker, where are you going, Abe? I don't know. What are you going to do when you get there? I don't know. Got this picture with his 92-year-old pregnant wife next to him? <laughs> then why are you leaving, Abe? Because God has given me a vision. And the Bible says, when the old no longer have dreams and the young no longer have visions, the people perish. What is your dream? What is your vision? We sang today, be thou my vision. Does Jesus envision something? You say, I'm too old, I'm not this, I'm too sinful. I'm... Give 
your life over to Jesus and attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. God could use you. God could do great things for you. I, uh, I take my students from Eastern University, the Christian University where I teach. It's just outside of Philadelphia. If you're going to send your kids to college, send them to Eastern. We'll radicalize them for Jesus. I had this one kid, Charlie, he went with me to, to Haiti. We, we were up in Capetian where there's a hospital and one doctor, one nurse. There was a lineup of about 200 kids, swelled bellies from malnutrition, arms and legs like sticks. Uh, uh, black hair turned rust color from malnutrition. It, it was a pathetic sight. The doctor, the nurse could only take care of about 60 of them, I guess. The rest were told to come back the next day. They were so sick, I don't think they were able to come back. Charlie looked at me and he said, Doc, I'm going to finish my education. I'm going to go to medical school. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a doctor in this place. I'm going to be a doctor right here. I'm going to save lives. I'm going to make a difference in this world. I ran into Charlie in New York, met him on the street. To his credit, he be, did become a doctor. You know what he's doing? Cosmetic surgery, not the kind that makes any sense. I mean, you put together a broken face after an automobile accident, that makes sense. If you handle a disfigured face, that makes sense. He was doing the kind of cosmetic surgery that caters to a sexist culture that evaluates women by the size of their breasts. You know what he was doing, implants. I listened to him and listened to him as he talked about going to church and I think he even said that he tithed and finally I said, Charlie, stop, stop, stop. You're, you're upsetting me. Charlie, you had a vision. You had a dream. You were going to do something significant with your life. And what did you do, Charlie? You traded in the dream, you traded in the vision for what? For a jacuzzi and a Porsche. I don't want to knock it, Charlie, but you're a sellout. Dress it up any way you want. You are a sellout. Let me tell you, people, if God is calling you to do something, don't get seduced by the culture. Don't get seduced by the world in which you live. I know how you're raising your children. You're telling them, go to school and get a good education. And if they ask why, I know what you tell them. If you get a good education, you'll end up getting a good job. Wow. And if you get a good job, you'll make a lot of money. And if you have a lot of money, you'll be able to buy a lot of stuff. No wonder they grow up as materialists. You've trained them to be materialists. When you make the purpose of an education to get the job, to make the money, to buy the stuff, don't be surprised when they turn out as materialists. You should urge your kids to go to school and get an get education. You should urge them to get the best education they can. But the purpose of an education is not to get the credentials to enable them to climb the ladder of socioeconomic success, to buy the big house, the big car, the big clothes. That's not the purpose. The purpose of an education is to equip your young people 
to be instruments through which God could do his work in the world, to be effective instruments of change, to be people who will change the world from what it is in small ways and perhaps even in big ways from what it is into what God wants for it to be. I ask you to make sure that your kids don't get conformed to this world. Francis Fukuyama says this, that in our American culture, we are manipulated into thinking that if we could just get the right stuff and live in the right house, drive the right kind of car, that we'll have worth, we'll have identity. I, I really feel out of place in this 21st century, because I, I grew up in the 50s. And we had folk songers, song singers that reminded us of what was really important. I think particularly of Paul, of, 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 of Seeger, Pete Seeger, who, who taught us to sing little houses on the hillside, little houses made of ticky-tack, little houses, little houses, little houses, all the same. There's a white one and a yellow one and a brown one and a blue one. And they're all made out of ticky-tack and they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all go to the university where they're all to put into boxes, little boxes, all the same. And they all play on the golf course. And they all drink their martinis dry. And they all have pretty children. And their children go to school. And their children go to summer camp. And then to the university where they're all put into boxes, little boxes, all the same. And the scripture says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices and be not conformed to this world, or as J.B. Phillips translates it, and don't let the world around you squeeze you into its little box, but let the Holy Spirit invade you and change you from within so that you live out a legacy that is worthy of your calling. Child of God. God wants you to do great things, which in the eyes of this world may be little things, done with great love. Are you willing to surrender your life to Christ and do the things that God wants you to do? You know what I came in here to, today? I, I passed that outer room there and there's a display there, mercy and justice, I think it says, and they have pictures of kids in third world countries. You know what you could do? You could change a kid's life today. You talk about a legacy, you could change a kid's life. You could go out there and say, I'll support one of those children. You say, I'm already doing that. Support a second one or a third one. It will, they'll write to you, you could write to them. If you're a young person here on a date, why don't you and your girlfriend go together and say, we'll support a child together. And she could write home to her mother and say, John and I have a child you don't know about. <laughs> it's worth a dollar and a quarter just to pull that off. You could feed, you could clothe, you could educate, you could deliver the whole ball of wax, the salvation story, to a child, to a child in a third world country. It's a little thing. It'll be a gigantic thing for that kid. And so I leave you with this. Are you ready to make Jesus the significant other? 
Are you willing to do the little things with great love? The little things that you can do day in and day out. And lastly, are you willing to embrace the vision of the future? Is there something that God wants you to do with the rest of your life? Some major change that has to take place. Are you willing to become the person that God wants you to be? Well, that's the end, except for this closing story. You've been very nice to me. This has been a tough morning for me because I'm not well. And you've been very attentive. Thank you. Thank you. But having said that, as good a congregation as you've been, you're not as good as my home church. I belong to a black church. I've been there since I was 19, and I'm 80 now, so I've been there a long, long time. And I love preaching in my church. It's been lovely to be here. I'm not knocking it. But in my church, you know how you're doing. When this is over, I'll have to ask my wife, how did I do? Because I have no idea. In my church, you know how you're doing. Even when you're not doing well, they let you know. One time I was halfway through a sermon that was going nowhere. And some lady in the back of the church yelled, help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus. And I knew it wasn't going well. <laughs> Once a year in our church, we have Student Recognition Day. And the young people come back. One by one, they come to the rostrum and tell the congregation what they're doing. I'm studying law at Harvard. You'll hear grandmothers go, my, 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 thank you, Jesus. Somebody else will say, I'm studying engineering at MIT. You'll, you'll hear them go, oh, Lordy, 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 all over the place. Somebody else will say, I'm studying music at Juilliard. Oh, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. You heard good music today, but you haven't heard the greatest music. Do you hear about 500 grandmothers and grandfathers Boating and groaning, the bones and groans of joy because their grandchildren are becoming what America never let them be. When they were all finished, seated, bright-eyed, and bushy-tailed, my pastor got up. And he said, children! Children! He talks like that. You're gonna die. You are gonna die. That's a good thing to tell young people. Because <laughs> they don't think they're gonna die. That's why they drive the way they do. They don't think they're going to die. It's inconceivable. He said, you're going to die. They're going to take you out to the cemetery. They're going to drop you in a hole. They're going to throw dirt in your face. And they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. <laughs> There's truth there. He said, when you were bored, you were the only one that cried. Everybody else was happy. That's not important. Here's what's important. When you die... Will you be the only one that's happy and everyone else will cry? Well, that depends on what your legacy is. Are your, is your legacy going to be titles? Or is it going to be testimonies? See, that's black preaching. That's got alliteration to it. Titles or testimonies. It's musical. White preachers are prosaic by comparison. Titles or testimonies. And then he did what only a black preacher could do. He swept through the entire Bible in five minutes. You've heard white preachers. We get bogged down. Today, we're going to exegete the third verse of the second chapter of Louise. You know, we die on our feet. 
Black preachers, man, they know how to do it. This guy went all the way through the Bible, starting in Genesis. He said, there was Moses. There was Moses and there was Pharaoh. Pharaoh had the title. Ruler of Egypt, that's a good title. Good title, ruler of Egypt. But when it was over, that's all he had was a title. He had the title, but Moses had testimonies. Ooh, that's good. He said, there's Jezebel. Queen Jezebel. She was going to destroy Elijah, the prophet of God. But when it was over, people, all she had was a title. She had the title, but Elijah had the... We got to dehonkatize this group. We really do. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you one more shot. Just one more shot. There's King Darius. There's a good title. King. King Darius. He had the title. He, he threw Daniel into the lion's den, but when it was over, all Darius had was a title. He had the title, but Dary, Daniel had the... People of God, one of these days they'll drop you in a hole. They'll throw dirt in your face. And they'll go back to the church and they'll eat potato salad, just like my pastor said. And here's the question. When it's all over, what will your legacy be? Will it be a tombstone with your titles? An obituary with your titles? Well, that would be nice, but here's what's really great. If there'll be people standing around your grave, literally or figuratively, giving testimonies, giving testimonies of how you how you lived out love, how you changed their lives, how you impacted them by what you are and what you did. I wish for you both titles and testimonies, but are you listening to me, people? If you gotta make a choice, you go for the testimonies. Amen.